0: Progress Versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell Part 7. What is to be done? Chapter 22. Government of the People The world is getting better. There's been the most amazing progress in the human condition over the past 300 years. Even if there have been some catastrophic reversals and plenty of late starts along the way. Despite the move towards greater technocracy within recent decades in the West, for almost everyone around the world, life is better now than ever before. To ensure that this continues, we need to safeguard free exchange. And that means taking steps to constrain the growth of powerful elites that might otherwise hinder progress. How might this be done? It's not enough to merely try to elect the right sort of politicians. Even if those elected understand the problem, in office they end up encased in the same machinery of state as anyone else. Even the bravest ministers find themselves run by officialdom. Nor is it enough to hope that the right politicians might appoint the right sort of officials to oversee the administrative state. An administrative state invariably tries to run things by official fiat, and is therefore antithetical to free exchange irrespective of whoever nationally presides over it. Instead of seeking to control the technocratic state, we should seek to deconstruct it, denying those that preside over it the sources of their power and their authority. Where decision-making has been concentrated within new bureaucratic institutions, we should seek to pass power back towards the people with a series of far-reaching democratic reforms. Where expansive officialdom has marshalled vast resources through borrowing, we should aim to ensure that the administrative state lives once more within the tax base. To rein in those with political power, the political process needs to be made properly competitive. Politicians need to answer more directly to their electorates and less to the party bosses, lobbyists and various branches of the administrative state that seem so effective at setting the political agenda of those elected to office. Too often in many established democracies, the political process is rigged with uncompetitive practices. Stripping these out of the system would make it much harder for those in public life to lose sight of what the public actually thinks. In America, for example, a system of gerrymandering has been created that allows politicians to choose their electorates rather than the electorates choose their politicians. Each state gets an allocation of seats in the House of Representatives. What then happens is that within most states, the two parties collude to carve up the state into congressional districts so that most of the districts are safe. That is to say, they become non-competitive. Gerrymandered seats are the 21st century equivalent of a rotten borough. Congressional districts should be drawn up as they are in the UK on the basis of how local people define their neighbourhood rather than how political parties would like the neighbours to be defined for their convenience. It's not just in America where anti-competitive electoral practices have emerged. The UK itself has an electoral system of 1 MP per constituency that was only introduced in 1884, not uncoincidentally the same year that the working man was given the vote. What this system does is to ensure that there is little competition within a constituency. Most seats in most of the general elections that have been held ever since stood little chance of changing hands. Naturally this suits parties who can count on the safe return of large numbers of seats in the legislature. It's not such good news for voters who happen to live in a seat where they get taken for granted there. The effect of the UK's monopolistic electoral system is to ensure that whoever wins the party nomination to be a candidate can almost always count on being elected to Parliament. This, of course, ensured that the party machine, in effect, gets to decide who gets into the legislature. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, within a few years of the introduction of the new electoral system in 1884, Parties started to become more organised, with a top-down system of candidate selection and approval. Unlike in America where parties, relatively recently, started to open up the process for selecting candidates, little serious effort has been made to allow ordinary voters in Britain to have much of a say in the candidate selection process. A reform that would help the political process in the UK would be to introduce a system of open primary candidate selections. In America, this has had the effect of ensuring that even in areas that tilt heavily towards one party, or when the boundaries have been drawn up to make things uncompetitive, there is at least an element of competition. New York's 14th Congressional District, for example, might lean heavily towards the Democrats, no matter how you draw the boundaries. But it was still possible for uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, to defeat the incumbent congressman in a primary contest in order to get to Congress. Irrespective of your views about the infamously outspoken AOC, it's surely good for democracy that new voices like hers can compete to get into Congress. In Europe, the electoral system seems almost designed to empower party bosses to keep candidates and ideas that they disapprove of out. Instead of having constituencies or districts, seats in many legislatures are allocated according to a party list system. Each party ranks its candidates on a list. Voters then vote, determining what percentage of the seats in Parliament are allocated to each party. Unsurprisingly, parties tend to put the leadership sycophants and placemen higher up the list and anyone that shows any form of independent thought lower down the list process of ranking candidates, more so than the votes of the people, tends to determine the composition of the legislature. Is it any wonder that millions of Europeans now feel that their politicians are a cast apart? Politics on either side of the Atlantic would benefit from a right of recall, allowing voters to sack their representatives' mid-term In America, various elected officials can already be recalled in certain circumstances. However, there's no such right to recall senators or members of Congress. The details of how recall might apply in different countries would vary, but the basic principle that the electorate can trigger a vote of confidence in their elected representatives midterm is a good one. Too many politicians serve their party interests rather than the broader one. Making them directly accountable to ordinary voters midterm would act as a necessary constraint on over partisanship. In Switzerland and some US states, voters have the power to trigger referendums. The use of referendums needs to be extended. Such as the political elite's fear of populism at present, there would be enormous opposition to the further use of plebiscites. Referendums aren't democratic. They're tools for demagogues, insists those that disapprove of the EU referendum result. Referendums are actually a pretty effective constraint against overbearing government if done properly, especially when, as in Switzerland, there are means by which voters can veto something that the executive is seeking to do. If those that we elect are unwilling to reign in the administrative state, perhaps the electorate should be given the right to do so more directly. Removing various anti-competitive practices from the political process and introducing a right of recall, using more referendums and open primaries, all of this might help ensure that competition arrives in the political process. But would it ensure that the new competitive politics was any more inclined to reign in the administrative state? If we're serious about constraining big government, We need to restore the most fundamental constraint on big government, the link between taxation and representation. For as long as any extra government spending meant higher taxes, the taxpayer could be counted on to vote in a way that would keep government small. Richard Nixon's decision to make the US dollar a fiat currency in 1971 broke the link between taxation and representation. It's worth delving a little deeper to understand how and why a change in the way that we manage the currency had such an impact on democracy. Once the US dollar was converted into a paper currency in 1971, no longer backed by gold, the government could do two things on an unprecedented scale. Borrow money and debase its value both enable officialdom to live beyond the tax base. If a dollar issued is no longer backed by a quantity of gold, there's no longer this basic constraint on the number of dollars put into circulation. Government can in effect print more and more of the stuff, diminishing the value of what is in circulation. Disinflation is a form of taxation since it transfers wealth from those that use and hold the currency, the value of what they have goes down, transferring it to the state, which issued the extra currency in the first place. To put into perspective the inflation that's happened since 1971, reflect on what happened in Rome between AD 1 and AD 200. Over the course of two centuries, successive Roman emperors cut the silver content of the denarius by about 90%. What it took the Romans two centuries to do, our governments have achieved in two generations. Since 1971, inflation has diminished the value of the US dollar and the pound sterling by about the same amount. But it's not just inflation that the shift towards a paper currency is allowed. What happened in 1971 has enabled governments to borrow enormous amounts too. Since the 17th century, if not earlier, when a government has needed to spend money and needed to spend more than it takes in tax, it's issued a bond, an IOU. A bank, or in early modern times, an especially rich family might have lent a government or ruler cash up front in return for a bond that promised to pay them back a certain amount over time out of future tax revenue. Unlike setting tax rates, Neither the House of Commons nor Congress has ever had control over how many bonds the Treasury issued. But what limited the ability of government to borrow from the bond market was, to put it crudely, the willingness of banks to lend. Making the US dollar a fiat currency suddenly enabled banks to create vastly more credit than they had been able to create before. The willingness of banks to buy bonds increased dramatically from the early 70s. Indeed, billion-dollar bond markets sprang up around the Western world on a scale that was without precedent. Buying up all this government debt on behalf of all kinds of investors became big business. Suddenly it became extremely easy for a government faced with less tax revenue than it might have liked to increase what it was prepared to offer lenders at the regular bond auction. No one need vote to raise taxes. There would be no harmful electoral response from voters angry that they were having to pay for all the things that they'd been told they had a right to expect. Deficits and debt rose. Bond dealers made fortunes. And the administrative state was able to expand. Like some of those oil-rich autocrats who don't depend on the permission of people for what they're able to spend. Public administration has grown more lavish and less responsive. Of course, if you're a dictator in an all-rich country, you don't depend on having to appease the electorate to hold office. But even so, if you have any sense, you will from time to time use some of the wealth that you have to appease and to bribe the masses. Western governments do have to think far more about how to keep their electorates on the side. So the incentive to bribe voters with the proceeds of the bond market is never far away. Imagine the effect of forcing the state to spend only what it was prepared to take in tax. In America government spending is currently about 37 percent of GDP or rather it was before the Covid crisis. Yet the tax take is only about 26 percent of GDP. That difference between 37% GDP spending and 26% GDP tax take is the annual deficit. If what the state spent had to be the same as what it took in tax, either there would be an almighty increase in taxation followed by a massive anti-tax backlash or vast swathes of the administrative state would have to be shut down permanently. This is the only really effective way to deconstruct the technocratic state. Electing conservative sounding politicians has done little to help, but ensuring that government can no longer live beyond its tax base requires changing the way that we manage the money. The Watergate scandal might now be a distant memory. But the consequences of Richard Nixon's decision to turn the dollar into a fiat currency are still with us. Expansive officialdom has been given free rein to fund vast budget deficits. What should we do about this? Although at some point in the future China, which has built up very large gold reserves, could establish a link between its currency and the value of gold, it's difficult to see a return to any kind of gold standard as a solution. Apart from anything else, decreeing that the US dollar or the Chinese currency is worth a certain amount of a precious metal is a form of price fixing. As Britain discovered when we returned to gold after the First World War, fixing the price of anything arbitrarily can have all sorts of unintended consequences. We don't need a grand scheme to fix the world currency system. We need a system that allows the currency system to evolve of its own accord. The original 19th century gold standard, of course, evolved in precisely such a way. It was never the product of any grand top-down design. It emerged organically. How might one allow a currency system to develop, which didn't serve the interests of technocratic states, intent on spending what they weren't prepared to ask their electorates to pay for out of tax? First we need to limit the ability of banks to conjure vast quantities of credit out of thin air. Unless and until you do so, governments will have almost unlimited takers for its IAUs and so be able to spend with very few constraints. Quite apart from all the harm that credit bubbles cause, inflating asset prices, producing malinvestment which end in inevitable busts, it's fundamentally what's fueled the growth of big government A bank's ability to conjure credit out of nothing is based on a simple point of law. If you deposit money into your bank account, you no longer own that money. The bank does. You merely hold a legal claim to it. Since the bank now legally owns what you've paid into it, it's legally able to lend against it, often multiple times. This system of fractional reserve banking has been around a long time. But before money became a paper promise, fractional reserve banking couldn't produce quite the quantities of credit that we see today. The fiat money, when mixed with unrestrained fractional reserve banking, enables almost limited credit creation. This is precisely why, in the aftermath of the Nixon shock of 1971, credit controls Limiting what banks could do with their unrestrained credit-creating powers were needed. It was only once those proved ineffective that we moved towards monetarism, a policy of trying to control the supply of money without credit controls, but by manipulating interest rates. One could almost argue that the history of monetary policy in the advanced industrial nation since 1971 has been a series of failed attempts to deal with the unintended consequences of giving banks the power of unlimited credit creation. What if we limited the credit that banks could conjure up by changing the law so that, unless the customer explicitly agreed otherwise, the money that they deposited with a bank remained legally the customers, not the banks? Banks might then have two tiers of bank accounts ones in which the customer retained ownership deposit accounts and those where the banks were free to lend out multiple times lending accounts. If that happened presumably the interest rates would be lower in the former kind of accounts and higher in those accounts where the bank was able to lend against the deposit and earn an income. The total amount of money that customers placed in a bank's deposit accounts relative to the money they could leave in a bank's lending accounts would become in effect The bank's reserve ratio. If customers trusted a bank, the ratio of money they left in lending accounts would rise relative to that in deposit accounts. In other words, the reserve ratio would rise. Conversely, if customers didn't trust those who managed their bank, the reserve ratio of the bank would fall. As well as creating a banking system that made it harder for officialdom to engage in a symbiotic relationship with big banks in order to live beyond its means such a series of reforms might also provide a free market way of managing financial risk guarding us against excessive leverage of the kind that has on several occasions threatened to damage the global economic system but these sorts of changes would ruin our economic system as we know it some will say we need the credit to grow Actually, in 2007, the current banking system did a pretty good job of crashing the world economy and changing the law so that banks could no longer automatically lend against a customer's deposits would not end credit creation, it would not even end fractional reserve banking. It might just help ensure that credit tended to correlate more closely with someone's savings and someone else's deferred consumption. Capital would be allocated on the basis of actual economic demand rather than officialdom's appetite for debt. And officialdom would have to learn to live with fewer deficits and less debt. It is thanks to democratic innovation, in this case the use of a referendum, that Britain is able to leave the European Union. It took a plebiscite enable Britain to break free from a technocratic state that's stifling innovation and growth. Hopefully the use of more direct democracy will enable other European states to break free from a failing union too. But how might we manage international relations instead if we're not to do it through supranational blocs? If everyone left the EU, is there not a danger that Europe would return to being a mosaic of nation-states imposing all sorts of restrictions and constraints upon one another. That's certainly what the political elite in Brussels would say. Without an army of officials, trade barriers would go up and living standards would come down, they would claim. If there was less trade, we would certainly be worse off. But why would having fewer rule makers making all those rules mean more protectionist trade policies? On the contrary, Aren't they the cause of the permission based regulations in the first place? The real alternative to the supranational system called the European Union is to have a system of free trade achieved through mutual standard recognition. Imagine that you go on holiday to America. You eat food that has been approved by US regulators. You might drive a car that's met US federal standards. Fancy a bit of shopping in the local mall? You buy clothes that have been manufactured to a US specification. If, heaven forbid, you fell ill, you would be treated with medicines that had been approved by the federal pharmaceutical regulator, the FDA. You wouldn't refuse any of those products because they had been approved by a US rather than a UK or an EU regulator. So why is it that when you return to the UK, you're prevented from consuming any of those items unless they've been approved by a European regulator? If we had real free trade, you wouldn't be stopped from using American products in Britain and Europe. A free trade agreement between several countries would mean that whatever it was legal to buy and sell in one country could be legally bought and sold in others too. Each country would continue to go about regulating its own affairs but if citizens wanted to buy something that had been approved for use in another country's regulatory system, they would be free to do so. Rather than one uniform set of standards, there would be multiple. Multiple standards aren't so unusual, indeed they are already the norm in education. In Britain, sixth formers can sit an exam when they're 18. In many cases, the exam that they take is called an A-level. But some can sit a different system called the International Baccalaureate instead. Some sit AS levels. Others do none of those things, but sit something else completely called a pre-U exam. Each of those exams is, in their different way, an assessment of what the pupil has learnt. Mutual standard recognition between comparable Western regulatory regimes would produce something similar. Just as someone is free to sit the International Baccalaureate exam administered by a body in Switzerland, so it would be free to buy chocolate or cheese approved by a Swiss regulator. Indeed, restricting that freedom makes very little sense. The government doesn't ban you from buying and bringing home US regulated products if you visit the States. So why do they presume to ban you from buying them once you're back in the UK? Ah, but regulatory competition, it might mean a regulatory race to the bottom, suggest critics. Nope. Regulators would still have a legal duty to keep people safe. But you might get a regulatory regime that was a little bit more circumspect and considered. If the UK regulator knew that another rulemaker was having to make the same assessments that they were having to make, they might be more careful to ensure that the rules they imposed were proportionate. The onus would be on regulating what needed regulating rather than making rules as an end in itself. We might at last ditch the disastrous precautionary principle, which so many homegrown regulators use as a pretext to stifle all kinds of innovation. Regulators might stick to regulating outcomes, the functionality of the finished product, rather than interfering as they increasingly do with the process of its production. Moreover, because more than one agency would determine the standards in any one area, the system would be less open to lobbying by vested interests looking to rig the rules to their advantage. If one regulatory agency was captured by a particular vested interest, as many have been, they could not skew the market in a certain way as easily as they can do so today. But might a system of different regulatory regimes not lead to chaos and complexity? Quite the opposite. It's a current attempt to impose uniform standards across the European single market and to govern transatlantic trade through TTIP that creates complexity and confusion, not to mention a blizzard of red tape. Trying to harmonise different standards will always be more complicated than permitting both. Mutual standard recognition would allow us to have regulation without constricting the consumer. It would reconcile independence, nations making their own rules, with interdependence, the need to allow individual buyers and sellers to exchange freely. Specialisation and exchange, which is what drives human progress, would be secure. Imagine if back in the first century AD you had wanted to restore the old Roman republican system of government. What would have been your first step? One measure might have been to abolish some of the new imperial institutions such as Augustus's new Consilium Principalis and return the powers that were exercised by these executive institutions back to the senate or even to elected magistrates. Or what if you lived in 14th-century Venice and you wanted to ensure that power within the Republic was dispersed more widely once again? It would have made sense perhaps to propose proposed abolishing the Council of Ten and handing its executive responsibilities to a larger, more broadly representative body. One only has to think of institutional change in these terms to appreciate that institutional reform is not enough. Just as the shape of a society's institutions cannot itself account for why power is dispersed, neither can power be dispersed within a society through institutional change alone. Abolishing part of Augustus' imperial bureaucracy would not have restored the Republic. A bit of an institutional tinkering to an already inordinately complex Venetian constitution would not have opened up the oligarchy. Neither is institutional change today going to be enough to keep power dispersed and free exchange secure. What about the idea that we might reign in the system of imperial technocracy that's emerged in Europe and America in our time by cutting it off for more money? If government on either side of the Atlantic had to live within its tax base, would that be enough to ensure limited government? It'd certainly help if officialdom... To no longer borrow on such a vast and easy scale. Yet we know from what's happened each time that the US Congress has withheld funding from the federal government, what sort of backlash then follows. Congress comes under enormous political pressure, irrespective of who sits in the Oval Office, to be generous with tax dollars that a future generations of Americans has not even yet paid. If we want to ensure that power in free societies remains dispersed we need to tackle the impulse for greater intervention in social and economic affairs itself. We need to change some of the underlying assumptions society has about the rights and wrongs of free exchange in the first place. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book if you're interested in hearing more from this series please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast